This is the Bird Hugger Podcast with Katherine Greenleaf, the podcast for people who love birds. Welcome to the Bird Hugger Podcast. I'm Katherine Greenleaf, and I'm so glad to be with you. I'm on board for a full 30 minutes of talking all things birds and restoring native habitat. Did you recognize that bird call? We'll be talking about that particular species of bird in just a moment when we return to Bird Hugger. What happens when a burnt-out college professor living in New England decides to become a wildlife rescuer and rehabilitator? Find out on Bird Hugger, the podcast for people who love birds. Join host Katherine Greenleaf, who has been rehabilitating injured wildlife for 20 years and hear how you can turn your backyard into a native oasis for birds. Hi everyone, I think we've got a great lineup for you today. Today we'll be talking about the sweet robin and some of the folklore surrounding this bird. We'll also be reminiscing today, imagining a walk through grandma's garden. Then we'll be discussing how to help an injured bird, along with a talk about the impact of fireworks on wildlife and water quality. I don't know about you, but I am not exactly thrilled with the dry weather conditions we've been experiencing here in New England for the last several weeks. Some regions have declared drought conditions, and people are finding their wells are drying up. The U.S. Drought Monitor shows 14% of the Northeast in a moderate drought. That's as of today, which is July 2nd. And another 31% of New England is listed as abnormally dry. In Tewksbury, Massachusetts, residents found discolored water coming out of their taps and experienced very low water pressure. This is the result of water reservoirs drying up due to dry conditions, combined with overuse. Towns have been enacting water restrictions all over New England, barring non-essential water use like filling of swimming pools, washing cars, and also watering of lawns, which uses a huge amount of water. Sadly, I'm seeing a lot of wildlife on the move right now looking for water to drink. People are seeing bear, deer, and moose come into their yards to drink from bird baths and ponds. Birds are having a difficult time right now finding safe, clean, and clear water to drink. Wildlife really suffers in dry conditions. Vernal pools and small water holes dry up, forcing turtles and salamanders to seek water elsewhere, putting them in danger from cars. As you can imagine, drought has a very negative impact on plants. Extremely dry conditions can prevent the roots of plants from absorbing badly needed minerals. This can occur no matter how much fertilizer you add to the soil. Drought can impact vital carbon and nitrogen cycles, placing the plant into a state of extreme stress. Often with drought-like conditions, you will see plants that are shorter than normal, with fewer leaves, and the leaf size will be smaller. In addition, fruit trees will produce fewer fruits. So now you've heard the saying, saving for a rainy day. How about saving for a dry day? What are some of the things we can do to help ourselves during drought-like conditions? There are several options. One is to use hand watering with a watering can instead of a hose or sprinkler, which can waste a lot of water. Another is using drip irrigation. Another is keeping rain barrels on your property to catch water from your rain spouts. 
Did you know just a half inch of rainfall can create 600 gallons of water off your roof? You can capture all of this and keep it stored away for use during dry conditions and times of drought. Some people even install ponds on their properties as insurance against drought. But securing all of your gutters with rain barrels can net you quite a bit of water. Think of the huge monetary investment people make by buying and planting non-native perennials. These can include exotics and cultivars. These plants cannot adapt to the New England region because they come from other countries. They will be the first plants to shrivel up and die in drought-like conditions. The great thing for those of us who plant natives is that they are adapted to drought-like conditions. Natives know how to tough it out. That's because they spend their first two to three years and even five years developing an extensive root system. This extensive root system knows to hold on to moisture, so natives are usually ready for just about anything. This, of course, does not apply to natives you just planted. Like any first-year planting, natives need water to get started. Drought is a perfectly good excuse to kill your lawn. Doug Tallamy, the author of the new book, Nature's Best Hope, is urging all of us to cut the size of our lawns in half. You can do this by extending the planting edges around your lawn several feet and filling that space with native shrubs and plants. Now let's talk about going native and creating an oasis for birds in your backyard. Do you remember Grandma's garden? As a child, I can recall frolicking through my grandmother's backyard, delighting in iridescent butterflies. I can remember the comforting hum of bumblebees. I can remember feeling the sun on my face. Well, what always enchanted me most was the variety and abundance of songbirds that made their home in her yard. Let's face it, her garden was, well, messy. She didn't blast her yard with a leaf blower or tear up wildflowers with a weed whacker or pump toxic chemicals onto her grass. She never went in for the newfangled non-native exotic bushes and trees from China and Japan. Those were certainly all the rage back when she was a gardener 50 years ago. She knew birds could only survive by eating the foods provided by native trees, shrubs, and perennials. She knew, left alone, that nature would thrive. And now, of course, expert naturalists are saying that going back to messy backyards with native trees and plants may be the only thing that prevents our rapidly vanishing songbirds from disappearing entirely. So if you make a decision to shift your garden back to native plants, there are a few things to consider. First, keep in mind that birds are drawn to native trees and shrubs because these host plants attract and provide food and shelter to all of the nutritious foods birds prefer. I'm talking, of course, about insects, primarily caterpillars, crickets, grasshoppers, ants, beetles, spiders, bees, moths, and adult butterflies. But these trees also provide much more than that. They provide honey, nectar, sap, berries, fruits, nuts, and also seeds. Songbirds are primarily insect obligate. That means they need to eat lots of protein-rich insects to survive. Grandma never put out a single bird feeder. She knew that if you want to draw birds to your yard, the key was in providing the native plants that insects love to munch on, creating an endless gourmet buffet for the birds. Now let's talk about some recommendations for 
trees and shrubs that will have birds lining up to get into your yard. Did you know that a single native oak tree can provide food and shelter for over 500 different types of herbivorous insects? And that includes caterpillars. Caterpillars are the food of choice for parent birds feeding their hatchlings. Lindens, willows, pines, sugar maples, sycamores, black locusts, hawthorns, crabapple trees, all of these play a key role in providing insects for birds. Even the stately elm tree, which plays host to over 200 insects, is making a comeback. Some native shrubs, trees, and vines that provide nutritious berries for birds are elderberry, spicebush, winterberry, alternate leaf dogwood, arrowwood, serviceberry, and Virginia creeper. Chokeberry bushes and hawthorn trees offer fruit much needed by birds in winter, along with the eastern red cedar, a big winter favorite with birds. It's really best to slowly and gradually remove alien species over a period of several years and then replace them with natives. Now, should every non-native plant be removed? That's a big controversy with naturalists. But really, in the end, it's your yard, so it's up to you. There are a few alien plants that can be useful to birds. Even the lilac tree provides seeds that grosbeaks, finches, and chickadees will eat. Natives provide biodiversity on a multi-level system, reliably providing food for insect hosts, food for birds, protection, and nestling sites. Most alien plants provide very little, and if they do, it is usually just on one level. Take a walk through your yard and make note of the ratio of natives to non-natives. Tipping the scale in favor of natives will certainly increase the number of birds in your yard. And please remember, when you remove a berry-producing plant like the invasive honeysuckle berry bush, you want to replace it with a native that provides berries during the same part of the season. Many songbirds return to their natal or original nesting site, and you can bet they will be relying on that fresh supply of berries to get them and their youngsters through the season. Hackberry, which draws over 50 species of songbird with its delicious sweet berries, might make a good alternative. The major hurdle in the return to native plantings is the untidiness. For decades, gardeners have hauled out the pesticides when they see leaves being chewed up by insects. Allowing beneficial insects to feast on your plants will require some restraint. But if you do, you will get to see the wildlife that actually resides in your backyard. The luna moth, which overwinters in her silken leaf-wrapped cocoon at the bases of trees, is a beautiful species to watch. Very rare. I would say put your rake away so that you can see the luna moth. In addition, the eggs, chrysalises, and larvae of some butterflies wait out the winter in hollowed out stems and leaves on the ground. Why would you put them all in a big bag and take them to the landfill when you can enjoy their beauty right in your own backyard? The great thing about going native is it means less backbreaking work for gardeners. Instead of raking, trimming, and leaf blowing, you can relax in your favorite lawn chair and enjoy your yard. Perhaps this whole native thing isn't so bad after all. Did you recognize that bird call at the beginning of the show? That's the call of the American robin. You've heard the saying, the early bird gets the worm. That would be the robin. While you may think of the robin as an urban backyard bird, this tough little creature can survive in rugged mountain forests and even the Alaskan wilderness. Traditionally known as the robin redbreast, 
this sweet bird marks the coming of spring for so many of us. Many robins do not migrate in the traditional sense and will spend the entire winter in their breeding range. They migrate regionally to warmer spots, but don't undergo the migration that most songbirds endure, flying thousands of miles from Central and South America. While known best for pulling earthworms out of the ground, they also like to eat slugs and snails. They also enjoy a wide variety of fruits, including choke cherries and berries from sumac and dogwood. The female robin does the nest building, using twigs and dead grass for the outside layer, and then using the wrist area of her wing, or metacarpals, to carefully pat down grass and moss to create a soft area for the nestlings. When finished decorating, she then uses worm castings and wet mud to reinforce the sturdiness of the nest. Robins usually raise three nests per year, but have been known to produce five nests a year, which may explain why you see them everywhere. Oddly enough, the peace-loving male robin will not fight with other male rivals over breeding grounds, but will instead compete by singing much like you see on the TV show American Idol. Male robins will sing their hearts out to win over a female robin. I thought it would be fun to examine some of the folklore surrounding the robin. Legends claim that when you see a robin, you are being visited by a deceased loved one. The robin is also looked upon as a symbol of promising new beginnings and a sign of good fortune. When a robin appears in your yard, you can expect your life to grow in new and exciting ways. In fact, many people still make a wish when they see a robin, hoping to enhance the good luck that the bird brings. Robin energy means you will be able to move forward with perseverance and grace in any situation. The robin will teach you to believe in yourself and any new project you begin. When you dream about a robin, it means you are moving in the right direction in your life and will meet with great success. And now let's talk a moment about how to rescue an injured wild bird. It's often hard to know what to do when you find an injured wild bird, but don't panic. I'm going to give you some tips to help you figure it all out. When you find an injured bird, the first and most important thing to do is remove the bird and get it to a safe place. Keep in mind the three most important words, dark, warm, and quiet. Put on some leather work gloves or gardening gloves and bring the bird indoors and place it into a cardboard box on a soft towel and keep it in a quiet room. Birds stress out very easily, but keeping the bird in a dark box where it cannot see out will help to keep it calm. Please do not give the bird food or water since it may have internal injuries and ingesting anything could cause the bird to die. When a bird is injured, it is a true emergency and time is of the essence. The next step is to call your local wildlife rehabilitator. Some wildlife rehabilitators may ask you to drive the bird to their facility, or others may send volunteers to pick up the bird or perhaps meet you halfway. The sooner you get the bird to a wildlife rehabilitator, the better its chances of survival. When transporting the bird to a wildlife rehabilitator, please keep the animal in the back seat of your car and not the trunk or bed of a pickup. Please keep noise and disruption to a minimum, and keep in mind also that cigarette or cigar smoke can permanently damage a bird's delicate air sacs. If your children are involved in the rescue, please explain to them that holding and petting a wild bird can stress it out to the point where you may well end up with a DOA on your hands. If you have found a nestling songbird and it appears uninjured, you can place the bird back in the nest. Birds in general have a very poor sense of smell 
and it is not true that touching a baby bird will cause the parent birds to reject it. Now, I usually recommend that the baby bird be put back in the nest, if at all possible. But sometimes the nest has been destroyed or knocked out of the tree due to high winds or a sudden rainstorm. Or sometimes the nest is just too high up in the tree to reach. What I usually have people do is take an Easter basket and tie it to the branch of the tree where the bird was found, try to tie it up on the shady side so the baby bird is not being hit with full sun. If the nest was at the side of the house, say in a broken soffit, use a ladder, tie the Easter basket to the top rung of the ladder. You always want to make sure that the basket you use, if it's not an Easter basket, that it's porous. So in case it rains, the water will run straight through. You don't want a situation where the basket's filling up with water because the uh, baby will drown. And then once you have the baby safely in the Easter basket and tied back up as close as you can to the original nest, the key to success is to clear the area for four to five hours. And that means no people, dogs, cats, cars, trucks, lawnmowers, fireworks. It has to be completely quiet so that the parents will come back and reunite with the youngster. Now, let's say you find a baby bird that has not yet grown feathers, is covered in dirt, is bleeding, is attracting flies, or perhaps has a broken leg or wing, then it is very important to get that bird to a wildlife rehabilitator for medical treatment as soon as you can. Another common injury to birds is a concussion due to flying into a window. If you find a bird that has hit a window, Place it into a cardboard box, bring it inside, and call your local wildlife rehabilitator. While it has been quite common in recent years to wait 40 minutes and then release the bird, the latest studies are showing many of those birds perish hours later in the woods. There are new medications that rehabilitators can use that will quickly reduce brain swelling and internal hemorrhaging. A bird that has been grabbed by a cat has most likely also been bitten and needs immediate attention. It can be very difficult to detect bite wounds on a bird due to their thick skin and heavy feathering. Cat saliva contains Pasteurella bacteria, which unfortunately is 100% fatal to birds unless that animal receives special antibiotics within 12 hours of the bite. A wildlife rehabilitator can provide this vital life-saving medicine to the bird, provided you get the bird to the facility as soon as possible. If you find a hawk, owl, or eagle standing by the side of the road, then most likely it has been hit by a car and needs immediate attention. You may also sometimes find loons that have mistaken asphalt parking lots for bodies of water. This is especially a problem when it is rainy or foggy. If you see a loon stranded on land, again, please call your nearest wildlife rehabilitator. Never hesitate to call us. We are happy to offer tips and suggestions. You may not realize it, but your willingness to help a bird in distress makes you a bird angel in the eyes of a wildlife rehabilitator. Without you, we could not do our work. Join Americans everywhere in the one-third for the birds movement. Dedicate the back third of your yard to birds and other wildlife. Make this area a quiet zone with no leaf blowers or lawnmowers. Plant native trees and shrubs so birds have plenty of insects to eat. Create a safe haven for birds to nest and raise their young. You will be rewarded with many hours of bird watching fun. For more information on One Third for the Birds, go to the Bird Hugger page on Facebook. 
With the 4th of July holiday fast approaching, you may be planning to light up some fireworks to celebrate. However, you may not be aware of the potential harmful effects of fireworks on wildlife and water quality, not to mention humans. Fireworks can create large black clouds full of toxic heavy metals, and they can remain airborne for days. These clouds can poison plants, trees, wildlife, waterways, and people. This information is according to several Department of Environmental Services in various states. Some state fire marshal's offices say that most of the fireworks sold in the U.S. are manufactured in unregulated factories in other countries. These fireworks can contain sulfur coal compounds and radioactive ingredients like barium, strontium, cadmium, and rubidium. They may also contain ammonium perchlorate, which can contaminate surface and groundwaters and disrupt thyroid function. Fireworks have recently become a particular concern near recreational lakes that provide drinking water to neighboring towns. Polychlorinated dioxins, arsenic compounds, and hexachlorbenzone, all commonly used in fireworks, are known carcinogens. Some fireworks contain phosphorus, which promotes cyanobacteria blooms and fish kills in lakes, making the water unsafe for swimming. But it doesn't stop there. Some research is showing the lead dioxide and nitrate chloride found in fireworks may pose a developmental danger to unborn babies. Recent findings are suggesting that autistic children exposed to the toxic heavy metals of a fireworks display can suffer a heightened severity in their symptoms. A number of towns and lake protection associations throughout New England have recently taken action to protect wildlife and lake water quality from the potential toxic contamination of fireworks. Several have limited the use of fireworks to just weekends or the evening of July 4th and have initiated strict ordinances requiring special permits, fees, and property inspections. Some towns have done away with fireworks altogether. The deafening noise of fireworks has the potential to scare wild birds like loons off their nests. According to wildlife biologists, some reports claim loons have been so startled by the sudden loud noise of fireworks on lakes, they have panicked and trampled their own eggs and chicks in an attempt to flee from their nests. Studies conducted by the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Department revealed that loud noises like fireworks can frighten birds and cause them to break their necks from flying into buildings and windows in the dark. A 20-minute fireworks display can cause birds to become so disoriented they are unable to find their way back to their nest and their young. The study also showed roosting birds near the ocean can fly so far out to sea to escape the noise, they end up becoming exhausted and drowning. Other wildlife are also affected. Animals like deer and foxes can flee in blind terror onto busy roads and highways. Fireworks often reach a decibel level of 145 and above, while hearing loss can occur at 85 decibels in humans. Wildlife researchers argue the decibel threshold for wildlife is much lower, and that fireworks could cause sudden and permanent deafness in birds, mammals, and other wildlife. Many towns have enacted strict noise ordinances in response to complaints of horses breaking out of their paddocks and dogs running away due to fireworks. Animal shelters all over the U.S. routinely report a sudden influx of stray cats and dogs after fireworks displays. Also, veterans with post-traumatic stress disorder can be traumatized by the sudden loud noise of fireworks.
The 35,000 fires caused by fireworks each year in the U.S. don't just destroy buildings and forests. They also kill untold numbers of birds, mammals, and other wildlife due to respiratory distress from smoke inhalation. The toxic debris left behind after a display can be eaten by birds and other animals. So what are you supposed to do if you're feeling patriotic on July 4th? Leave the fireworks to the experts and attend town-sponsored events located away from lakes, ponds, and forested areas. Many states have banned the use of consumer purchase fireworks or only allow the so-called safe and sane varieties like ground fountains and sparklers. Some of these states are opting for outdoor laser light shows set to live or recorded music. So to understand this whole issue a little better, it's toxic heavy metals that form the base components for creating the bright colors you see at a fireworks display. Now, talking about sparklers, some safety experts are saying to avoid sparklers altogether because the smoke from the sparklers can be full of lead and other toxic heavy metals. In other words, what they're saying is if you can smell the smoke, then you are breathing in the toxins. Some people put sparklers on birthday or wedding cakes. This is really not a good idea. Now, let's talk for a moment about what happened in Oregon a few years ago when a teenage boy threw a smoke bomb off a cliff into a forest, causing an enormous wildfire that cost over $50 million in damages to natural resources. The Eagle Creek Fire burned for two months, ravaging the Columbia River Gorge and threatening 5,000 homes, destroying more than 48,000 acres. To be fair to the fireworks industry, it should be noted that some companies are pursuing the idea of what they are calling green fireworks. That is, fireworks with reduced smoke, improved colors, and fewer environmental impacts. In fact, the U.S. government is now providing research funding to develop propellants, explosives, and pyrotechnics that are more environmentally friendly. This includes the flare stars and comets the U.S. military uses to illuminate battlefields. Perhaps someday in the future, we can look forward to a safer 4th of July. If you are enjoying this show and like what we do, please help us out by subscribing or following us on your favorite app to access our free show. That way you'll get notified of what's coming, you'll never miss a show, and it will help us in the ratings. And now for more of my personal story. Finally, I attended Volunteer Orientation Day at the Turtle Rescue Center. I was so excited I could hardly stay seated. I wanted to get started right away. There were a dozen of us seated in front of a large PowerPoint screen, and the volunteer coordinator explained the history of the center and the problems faced by sea turtles in the Florida Keys. The first thing I noticed as I looked around was that I was the oldest volunteer in the room, and I'm talking like 15 to 20 years older than everybody else. I was in my early 40s, and most of the other volunteers looked like they were in their early to mid-20s. I found the age gap somewhat disconcerting, then forgot all about it when the volunteer coordinator had an assistant bringing a live sea turtle for us to observe. I learned that day there are five species of sea turtle found in the Florida Keys, the Kemp's Ridley, the Hawksbill, the Leatherback, the Green Sea Turtle, and the Loggerhead. The most active area for sea turtles seemed to be the Dry Tortugas, a series of small sand and coral islands approximately 70 miles west of Key West. Once a year, female sea turtles leave the ocean to dig a hole with their flippers and lay their eggs in the sand. The dry tortugas is a major nesting area for sea turtles. All five species are endangered, 
and the island's nesting areas are protected by national park rangers. As the history books go, the islands were discovered by Ponce de Leon in 1513, and he named the area Las Tortugas, which in Spanish means the turtles. The Kemp's Ridley is the smallest of the sea turtles, weighing 80 to 100 pounds and measuring about 30 inches long. Their shell is oval and broad and is usually colored in olive gray. The hawksbill has a mouth that tapers to a hawk-like beak and can weigh up to 200 pounds. This shy species likes to inhabit tropical reefs and dine on sea sponges. Then there is the green sea turtle, which can grow up to 300 pounds and has a jaw with a serrated edge, which allows it to pull and tear up the delicious sea grasses that are its favorite food. The loggerhead has a very large head, which is how it gets its name. It can weigh up to 400 pounds and can grow up to 40 inches in length. Its favorite food is jellyfish and crabs. And finally, there is the leatherback sea turtle, which can grow up to 6 feet in length and can weigh up to 1,400 pounds. The leatherback doesn't have scales like the other sea turtles. Instead, it has ridges of firm, rubbery black skin. The leatherback loves jellyfish. Turtles that weigh hundreds of pounds. Young and strong volunteers. The connection would become ever clearer as I drew nearer to my first day as a volunteer. And that's it for today's episode, everybody. Thanks so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. Have a great week and enjoy the birds. Bye for now. Bye for now.